I probably should say before you guys today, why is it that we go through a book like this? A raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Raise your hand if you grew up in a church that did not do this, that did not preach through books, every passage, every verse from verse to verse. Um, it's real common that we grow up in churches that deal more topically with things, and we do that as well as a church. I'm not going to down on that. We just left a series where it was topical. Um, but I do think it, it, it is helpful to go over just a couple reasons why we do that. Okay? One of the big reasons we do this is because it helps us really see God's overarching narrative. How he has ordained and placed history together. Right? Everything we see in history either drives forward towards the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, or emanates from that. But that is the pinnacle moment, the pinnacle season in all of humanity's history was the life, the death, and the living again of Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything else that we've ever seen goes towards that, and everything that will ever happen until Christ comes back comes from that. Right? And, it's beca- and, and, and so whenever we read a book all the way through, it helps us not just honor how it was written, um, why it was written, who wrote it. It actually helps us see where it fits within God's narrative. And that actually, in and of itself, helps us understand how to even read the book correctly. Okay, um, Because there is a pretty large frame, story, form. I'll just say it that way. In fact, I'm going to put a diagram up. Can you just put the empty diagram up? This is something that I learned. Okay, forgive all the pixelation. It's a JPEG. All right, have some grace. But the deal is, is this is what directors and film will call a plot line. Um, some preachers or pastors will call this also a homiletical plot line. The first time I came into contact with this was in, I took some film classes in college. Um, go ahead and put the, the next one up, which is the, the basic. Okay, so this is how, there's a reason I'm taking you through this, all right? This is going to start to feel like English class. I skipped it just like you did, so I hate English. But listen, this is really good stuff. You're going you're gonna to thank me later. You have the beginning. So in a story that has a beginning, that's where all the characters are introduced, right? This is who they are. This is the high school that they went to. It's always like in the middle of an average day, right? Think of movies now. It's always in the middle of an average day. Hey, just another day at the rail yard. Just another day in the boat. Just another day at work. Another day for a couple, right? And then you start to have the slide, added tension, uh-oh moments, uh-oh. Everything's normal, uh-oh, except for this day. Things aren't normal this day. This day there's, I don't know, whatever. But I mean, this is usually the bulk of the movie or the story is the beginning and the tension. That's usually about 80% of any story. And that could be a poem, a story you read, a movie you watch, a Johnny Cash song, it doesn't really matter. Um, but typically... This is going to be the climax. That's going to happen towards the back third of the story. Okay, That is where Rocky starts swinging back from being on the ropes against the Russian. Okay, That's where Luke Skywalker hits the Death Star You know, as they're in that little channel. Or Gandalf comes down the hill with all the reinforcements for all you nerds out there. That's it. That's the climax of the story. That's when for the protagonist to switch flips. Okay, And then from that point on, you start to see a reversal and a repair of the tension. A reversal of the uh-oh moments. Now that happens really fast in a movie. Okay, And then the resolution. The resolution is usually always going to be better than the beginning. Alright? Characters, setting, the normal... The new normal is typically always better. That's just typical. So let's just throw a movie in there like, 
the one I always use, one of my favorite movies is The Karate Kid. So The Karate Kid 1, not the sequel, I always have to qualify, not the sequel, and not the remake either. The beginning, so Daniel LaRusso, right, San Fernando Valley, fresh from New Jersey with his accent and his dark hair, right, no father figure going to this fancy high school, that's the beginning. All the characters are introduced, and then you have Tension, the Cobra Kai right with their fancy haircuts and their fancy karate moves and he can't get the girl he likes he's got all these internal father issues going on he's got to deal with Miyagi who's got his own issues right so you got this now this is taking up a ton of the movie and then you get to the climax which is the crank kick thank you the crank kick that's the climax right then from there on it's repair and it's resolution right at the very end he walks away with the trophy the girl, the father figure, you see? You see how that works? It's above the rest. All these stories that we have that work off of a plot line, a narrative plot line, it's really just a rip-off of the biblical story. Can I just say that? It's, it's borrowed from the real story that we have. All good stories are. But Luke, some stories are older than the Bible. That's right, there. But it's not all stories are older than God. No story is older than God. The storyline of the Bible is different. Let's go ahead and put that up there. There you go. Oh, see? See how it works now? Creation, beginning, the garden. That's the new, and then you have the collapse of mankind. Now that's pretty big, right? You have Adam and Eve's failure, Cain, then you've got the flood, you've got Babel, judges, kings. It's just nothing but, I mean, a lot of the Old Testament is a slide, a moral slide, where God occasionally will arrest the slide and pause it and pour his grace into a moment. But then what do we have down here at the climax? That's where the switch flips. That's where Christ is, right? The life, the death, and the living again of our Christ. That's where it's, but then he wants launches this into a repair of the uh, a repair of the collapse you have the church the church age all the way up to recreation which will always be better than creation do you see how that works does that make sense we're going to play on that a little bit more the reason what i like about this go ahead and put up nehemiah that's where nehemiah is in the storyline that's where it's at we're right about to be where Jesus Christ is. I mean, look at the storyline. You have garden to a new city. You have creation, which is the garden, up to recreation, which is the new Jerusalem. There will be themes that will change throughout the story. Okay? This is one of the books that sets up the entrance of Jesus. Now, this is where the drama is increasing. This is where it's piling on. The music is crescendoing. Right before Christ enters the stage through a virgin birth. Listen, all of you, like me, you want to know Jesus more. You want to know his heart better. You want to understand Christ more. Books like Nehemiah will help you with that. It will help you. It's setting up his entrance. It's one of the last moments before he even comes on the stage. Another reason we do this, you can go put the dead screen up if you want. Another reason we do this is because it keeps us grounded as a church. Going through books, I'm saying. It keeps us grounded as a church. And it allows us to see Jesus through every passage, which we're really, really big on. allows us to see the relevance of every passage. Listen, we're not making the Bible relevant. Nehemiah, as we go through that, we're not making Nehemiah relevant. God already did that. It's already relevant. We're just merely discovering how relevant it really is for our everyday life. It allows us to see God in all of God's story. 
I mean, Nehemiah, it points to Jesus. He points to Jesus heavily. Again, if you want to know Jesus better, you want to understand his heart better, Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah, we're going to find out. Learn a little bit about Nehemiah. I will, I'll bet it will change your understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. That would be my guess. That would be my bet. So, but of all the books, and there are a lot of them in the Bible, why go through this one? Why go through Nehemiah, right? I like it for these reasons. It's a book about building a distinctive people of God, right? The basic story, in one sentence, is Nehemiah goes from one place to another to build up the walls on a city where they had been torn down. That's it. But it's not really a book about just tearing down walls. It's actually a little bit more about, or or it is a book about tearing down walls, I should say, more than it is about raising up walls. Okay? The building up of walls is a symbolic move for us to understand that there is a distinctive people being made that separates them from the surrounding nations. There's a large culture that's been mixing. You can come in and out of a city with no walls at just a whim. You, you don't have to, I mean, you're unguarded. It's very difficult living in a city with no walls. Marauders can come in. You could be stolen from. You can be killed at all times. But to separate yourself from the other cultures, to be countercultural is what this book is pointing to. That is why we have Nehemiah. That is why he's going to build the walls. Okay? This is what Matthew <clears throat> writes. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5.14. You do, it's not going to be up on the screen. Um, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, Jesus is preaching what Nehemiah effectively already did. And Nehemiah did what he did knowing that Christ would come and preach something like this, I bet. It's something very beautiful that we have in this story. We're called to be a vastly, starkly, distinctly different people. We're really called to be a city within a city, right? This is why Nehemiah is helpful for us. It's also helpful because it deals with being broken, being broken of heart for a city and for a people. It does. You know, like Jesus, Nehemiah, he got down dirty with his hands in the sludge of culture and the piles of ruin, and he built something that was going to cost him, as we'll see. Jesus did the same thing. He too got down in the sludge and got gritty with his own hands and built something, and it didn't just cost him a fortune or a residence, it cost him his life. You see, both Jesus and Nehemiah left a comfortable place to go where they wouldn't be respected, to go where they would be attacked, to build a distinct people, to collect those who have been dispersed, who would image him. I mean, it's a beautiful story when you look at it. Many of you, you want to learn more about how to be missional. And you hear that word a lot. You might read books with it in there. We certainly say it a lot. To be missional just means to be on God's mission. Most of the time, when we come out of the womb, our factory setting is to be on our own mission, right? God has a mission as well, though, and it is to seek, to save the lost, that we will grow up and enjoy Him and all of our existence and image Him in everything that we do, right? Until He comes and calls a game. That is his mission. When we are on his mission, it puts us in a different posture. A lot of us struggle with that. Nehemiah is going to be a good book for this. 
That's going to help you with being on mission because the very core kernel, the very beginning of being missional is having a missional heart. You can have all the practice in the world. You could read a hundred books with the word missional in the title or God's mission or missionary or evangelism. You can read them all. You can read them all. But if you have a heart that's not broken for the people that you're sent to, you can forget about it. It's just wasted time. You have to have a heart, right? Nehemiah is going to help us look at this. It's also a book about a fight inside of walls, how they fight with each other inside their own camp, and the threats that come from outside. You can't read this book without seeing someone trying to kneecap Nehemiah. (laughs) Usually people that shouldn't be doing it. Usually someone that should be in his camp, they're not. They're aggressive towards him. They'll do anything to pull him down. On top of that, he's trying to do this impossible task. And then he's got threats coming in from these armies that are no joke, by the way, from outside the walls. I mean, it's just raining on him from every direction. It's amazing. But he handles them. A lot like Christ later will come and handle it. We're going to get to look at that. This book begins and it ends with prayer. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. But he's also an action figure. He also has a lot of action going on at the same time. Christ too, a man of prayer. Yet, very action oriented. Right? We need this. Because we need to be a community of believers that can do a lot better job of weathering attack. And I mean attack within our own ranks and attack from outside. Because we usually either pray a lot and don't act, or we don't pray and we act without praying, and neither one of them images Christ very well. There is a better way. Because fighting is going to happen. Fighting is going to happen. We will fight with each other. We will. But can we reconcile? Can we show the world what it looks like to reconcile, to renovate relationships? Can we do that? You will be attacked from the outside. You will have threats come in from the outside. Stuff will threaten your security. Things will threaten your your money, your family. Things will threaten you. We can learn a lot. But where does this fit in with the overall story? So we looked at a plot line just a minute ago. But, I mean, just without even revisiting the plot line, usually, this is called biblical theology, by the way, in case you're even remotely interested. But where you can follow a theme all the way through the narrative story of God. We're going to do that just for a minute. These are the themes I want you to pick up on, all right? Because I'm going to take about three minutes to do this. It's going to be very fast. One of them is building. We see this a lot. Homeland, cities, and exile from them. Okay? And then failure to keep God's laws. These are things that you're going to see. But I'm going to start with Adam and Eve. Alright? I know that intimidates you. I'm not spending a lot of time on this, I promise. But Adam and Eve, they were given the task to develop the world for God. I mean, they were given a garden of Eden. And we don't really know how big that garden was, right? But it was supposed to grow. We do know that. supposed to expand and commit dominion to that place. We do know. Supposed to develop the world to the glory of God. But they rebelled and they were exiled from their homestead. This garden is where they experienced the continual presence and the beauty of God. His presence was there, right? It was there. It was like a sort of a temple, almost, where God's presence would be found. But now, because they're exiled, they're in alienation, marching around, looking for what? A new home. A new homestead. A place that would not be Eden anymore. This is the human condition for us today, too, by the way. It's how we enter the picture. And they had their first son, Cain, the very first murder, the very first person to have a rap sheet. It's Cain. Comes and he murders his brother, 
And he is exiled by God to be a vagabond, a wanderer, a searcher, a nomad. But he doesn't want to do that, does he? He doesn't take God's... God's purpose was for him to wander. He says, I'm not going to deal with God's purpose. I have my own purpose, and I'm going to build a city. The first murderer built the first city. Now, this city is an opposite of an Eden because he built it to his own name, his own glory, his own magnitude. He built it for his son. Now, God's glory is not reflected in this city. And then later on, after the flood, now this is after the flood, you have Babel. Now you have a city, a lot like the one that Cain built, that is also trying to magnify itself and grow in its own glory and greatness. It too is deep in rebellion. It too is very opposite of Eden as a homestead. But God exiles him, doesn't he? He confuses their language and he disperses the nations, sending them all outward. Mankind by this point is pretty jacked up. Mankind by this point is dispersed, frustrated, They don't understand each other. They're exiled, looking for home. This is what Stephen Dempster says. He does a really good job of this biblical theology, especially within this book. The human condition at this point is in exile, both physically and spiritually. Humanity itself is in search of its home, but the doorway has been barred. Right? But then, but then, God visits His grace out of nowhere. Out of the bleak darkness, he comes with his grace. And he selects a couple, this old couple, living out their retirement. It's the Fort Lauderdale of the Mediterranean. And he says, Abraham and Sarah, he wants them to go. He's exiling them from their old home to go and do what? Search for a new home. Search for a new homestead. That's what you see. This is a place where God would be blessing his people. This would be Israel, eventually. A new city. A new people with walls. A new Eden. A new Eden. All the nations would look on to this and gaze because they would be countercultural and different. That is what's beginning with the story of Abraham as you read that. So God tells this old couple to leave home and to make a home for others. Okay? It would be a people that would reflect God's glory to the utmost and be different from the other nations and all that they did. Now later on, this very because this is a very modest beginning, right? I mean, Abraham did leave with quite a few people, but the beginning as a nation is very modest. So this, what was a modest, small beginning for a nation became a very large, influential people that eventually were taken into slavery. Right? They served another nation, another homestead. But God, out of His grace, His beautiful grace, freed them. Freed them from their oppressors, brought them through the Red Sea, and did what? Sent them looking for what? a new homestead. They were exiled from their oppressors to look for a new homestead. A new place where God's name would be honored, where His glory would be shown. And this is where God makes that covenant with them, right? That as long as they honor statutes, laws, and honor God, He would continually pour His blessing into them. It's the Ten Commandments. It was in this season that He said, hey, build me a tabernacle. The tabernacle would be later on replaced by the temple. These are the two things that house God's glory. That's where God's glory would come and be where? Among his people. That's what we see, right? Dempster goes on and says this. This was not only to be a place of blessing for Israel, but for all of the nations. It symbolized the restoration of Eden. But yet it was intended to bring Eden to the world. Israel was supposed to be a distinct starkly, vastly different people. 
countercultural that all the other nations would look on and see God's magnificence. And so Jerusalem, just like the church, us, to this day, Jerusalem was to be a city of God. A city of God. A place where God is worshipped, where His Word is honored, where family is honored. A place where we just did things different, where we do money different, we do sex different, we do food different, we handle our eyes different, our mouth different, we handle each other different, we do forgiveness differently, we do grace differently, we do everything differently. Jerusalem, just like the church today, Jerusalem in the Bible, is typically set up to be the city that all other cities look to. That's why it's referred to as a mountain sometimes, where all other nations can gaze upon it and see how different it is. There's different people, these different city of revolutionaries that have revolted from the norm of utter human condition that we all find ourselves into when we enter this thing. Now, as God's people began that moral slide, or really, I should say, continued that moral slide, and God would punctuate it with His grace from time to time, they were just continually growing further and further and further from being very different, from being very distinct, from being starkly different at all. They start looking like the people that were around them, right? The system of judges, every once in a while, I mean, we had a lot of judges, some good, some bad, right? Had a lot of kings, some good, some bad. And the story. And there's just waves of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. And you know what? Eventually rebellion just exhausted itself. Eventually the whole thing just exhausted itself. Rebellion had run its course as a nation. And just like Adam and Eve, a nation would be exiled from what should have been Eden to the world. Out. Exiled out. In exile they would have no more reason to sing. No more reason to hope. Because now they're not different from anyone else. They're mixed in with the pagans that they used to look over a wall to see. That's what's going on. Now they're mixed. No distinctness. No differential. This happened in 587 B.C. And the Babylonians came in, swept the house clean. The only, Jeru- the only Israelites they left were the ones that they did not want. They took the choicest Israelites, which was most of them, and they took them with them, leaving a city of ruins. They actually pulled the temple down brick by brick. The walls down, literally, brick by brick. Some of the bigger stones, they just kicked and pushed right down the hill into the valley to ensure that they could not build that city back up as an underscore of God's judgment on them. It's a big deal, right? Why am I telling you all this? As bad and as bleak and as dark as things had gotten, as hope, happiness are fleeting away, God's mercy and His grace yet continually pursue. He brought these prophets come out of nowhere. And what are they saying? They're saying, don't lose hope. God is going to take all the scattered people. He's going to collect them again. He's going to build the walls. He's going to build the temple. He's going to give you a continual shepherd who will never leave you. He, he's going to come, it's going to be beautiful. He's saying this to a people who are mixed in with pagans. God rebuilt. God said he was going to rebuild their homestead. He said he was going to dwell among them again. Now listen. The prophets were talking to them. The prophets are also talking to us. It's concerning the church as well. 
Listen to this quote, and don't just listen to it through the ears of what an Israelite would have heard. Listen to it through your own ears, because it's speaking to us as a church today as well. Dempster says this, The prophets had prophesied a new action of God, a new action, a new covenant, in which Israel would receive a heart to do the will of God, and a new spirit, right? to empower it to walk in the Torah. Israel would have a new shepherd who would always be with them to help them. And as a result of his actions, Jerusalem, the city of God, forgiven and restored, would become exalted again as a beacon of light to the nations. That's huge. Those are some big things being said. God, as sovereign as he is, as big as he is, He brought a nation in that was a little bit bigger and a little bit badder than the Babylonians. He brought in the Persians with Cyrus as the king. Now, if you're a a Jew at that time, it probably didn't really matter a whole lot to you. I mean, one oppressor is as bad as the next, right? I mean, who knew? And by this point in time, as Cyrus is coming in with his armies and taking over, 70 years had passed. 70 years, that's a lifetime. Jews had grown up and died without ever seeing their homeland. That's what's going on. There's a normal. They're already mixed in. They're probably already intermarrying. In fact, we know for a fact that they intermarried. They're already setting up commerce. They're living their lives in a new place. A lot of them don't ever even talk about home. It's not even a reality for them, right? So, I take you through all of that. I take you through all of that to say this is where Nehemiah comes in. This is where the story comes in. Enter Nehemiah at this point. Okay? He is one of those men who had never seen Israel, never seen Jerusalem, never seen the holy city, never saw the the ruins of the temple. He was a man that was comfortable and a good job. He was amazed, not not a theologian of any sort, not a professional. He just worked for the king. He worked closely with the king. So, I don't have very much time left. I only have a little bit left, but I do want to start. Because there are a couple little things we can learn from this. I did need to spend the time on setting it up, though. So, verses 1, 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. The reason I'm going st- to hit pause right there. This is a memoir. I think the first seven of the 13 chapters are memoir or journal format. Okay? You're hearing from the horse's mouth. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is our November-December. Think of that. Okay? It's cold. Snowy. Not a good time to get bad news. I'd rather get bad news in the summertime than the wintertime. I don't know about you. But that's, when, that's what's going on right now. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had, survi- who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Okay, by this time, there had already been two flights of people gone. Now we're not 70 years after the fact. Now we're 140 years. 140 years after the city had been crashed down and the walls are gone. Actually, 141 to be exact. By this time, there have been two flights of Israelites back to Jerusalem. One, Jerubbabel, took a team back and he was going to be the governor. And they were just going to set up camp, build the temple, build the walls. Later on, Ezra comes. Ezra comes with another big flight of people to do what? To build the temple. He's the third. We usually just think of one big wave going over there. That's not how it happened. There were three primary ones. I bet there were more than that. Three primary waves. All right. So whenever you read your Bible for the rest of your life, just know this. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, and Zechariah, those are four books that go together. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets that lived in this city at the exact same time that Ezra and Nehemiah were doing all of this. They knew each other. 
They had staff meetings together. They played poker together. These are the guys that ran together. Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and Ezra. Alright? It's important for you to know that as you read your Bible. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Now this is crazy. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, you've got Nehemiah. He's definitely broken down over the shame of the city. What I can't figure out for the longest time, this is 141 years after it happened. And they didn't give him any new news. What they had told him and reported was common knowledge circa 141 years previously. Why is he breaking down? We just don't do that as people. We're all of a sudden mourning and broken heart. I took it upon myself to look back in time 141 years. Alright? And I found a a pretty serious event. I mean, seriously. The same day that the the fire of Chicago happened, 141 years ago, and the fire of Chicago was a big deal because 100,000 people were left homeless. Man, that's a big deal. But across the the Great Lake, you had um, Wisconsin. There's a city called Peshtigo, Wisconsin, right? 1,500 people were killed in that same fire. 1,500 people. So if you had a buddy that went on Wikipedia, the fountain of all information for us, right? Right? Because that's the only reason I even know about it. Wikipedia. So you have a friend that goes on Wikipedia messing around and comes across the great fire of Peshtigo and he comes and he's all broken and he's mourning and he's decided he's going to mourn for four months and he's not going to eat for a lot of it. And he's broken. You'd look at him and you'd say, hey, emotionally, bro, we've kind of moved on. You know what I'm saying? We've moved forward. Even people that were related to those people who have died have moved forward. We are all moved forward. It's a serious deal. It happens. But it's odd that you're broken about it right now. We would look at it that way. Hey, Abraham Lincoln died. I'm going to mourn for four months. Or George Washington died. I'm going to... I mean, this is old knowledge. Why is his heart broken? Right? It's because he was given the heart of Jesus. And brokenness came upon him. This is what Mark Driscoll says. I really appreciate it. He nails it. He says, As Jesus would later weep for Jerusalem, so here Nehemiah is weeping for his city of Jerusalem. Jesus' heart has been given to Nehemiah through God, the Holy Spirit. That's important. We're going to find Brian in just a second. If you look in verse 5, though, it says, And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Hear this right now. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. So what is he doing? He's confessing the sins of the nation. We don't do that very much either, do we? That's kind of an odd thing to do. Right? We'll confess our own sins. Seriously, though, but we won't really confess the sins of our nation. He goes on. Even I... And my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So now he's taking personal ownership in this. Personal sin ownership. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me... 
keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So he's proclaiming God. This is, he's teaching us how to pray as well. This is a great model on how to pray. Proclaiming God's majesty, his hugeness, his promises, restating the things that he has already stated. And then he finishes with his plea. The first time we even see a plea in any of this prayer. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man and this man meaning the king and we'll hit that next week but what I notice in this this prayer portion of this beginning is he took a lot of responsibility I mean not just for his own sins we all know that we're kind of supposed to do that right that's just kind of granted but he took it for his family then he took it for his people then he took it for the city took it for his forefathers. He took responsibility. This is very odd to us as an individualistic society, isn't it? I mean, today, it's my deal. My deal is my deal. Your deal is your deal. I'm only responsible for myself. I'm definitely not responsible for you. And that's the way that we live. Nehemiah stands in stark contrast to this. Countercultural, you might say. But he didn't have to do that. I mean, stick any one of us in his role. If I was Nehemiah, I'd have been like, Listen, God, had I been back there, that probably wouldn't have happened. I would have stood up for truth. Those guys are the ones that wrecked it. 141 years ago, those dudes, I mean, God, I'm sorry that they did that to you. But you wouldn't claim any responsibility for it. We would naturally do that. Naturally, we're not built that way. Right? He took responsibility. He didn't have to do that. He owned their rebellion. He owned his own rebellion, and he owned the rebellion of the city. So, as I drive this to a close, are we broken for the city and the state of the church today? Ask yourself. You see a beginning of a book of a broken-hearted man. Are you as broke? Oh, listen, I've had to take myself to task for more than a week on this one question. This one question. Am I broken-hearted for my city? Not just the city Knoxville. Because listen, Knoxville is just as bad as Jerusalem. You think our walls aren't down? (laughs) You think our gates aren't burned? They are. They're a mess. The South is a mess. It's wrecked. And it's been so long that the wreckage is scenery. Just like it was for the Jews who were walking around 141 years after that city had been sacked. We don't see it in our cities now because it's normal. It's the new normal. It's just scenery, right? It's easy not to have a broken heart over spiritual bankruptcy, over massive moral failure. It's easy to not do that when we swim in the culture all day long, every day since we were born, right? Even in the church. This year alone, this year, 4,000 churches will close down. 4,000 churches. The remaining ones that did make it and did not close down, 80% of those will be in decline. 80%. That's a lot of churches. In fact, in order to keep up, just to keep up with the unsaved, non-Christian population in the South. Now, this is just a, a statistic for the South. The research was done by Tyler Jones and Raleigh. Just to keep up 
with the unchristian population in the South over the next 40 years, we have to plant 16 churches every day for the next 40 years. Every day, 6,000 churches, almost 6,000 churches a year. Let me just submit to you, we are not doing that. We're not planting 16 churches a day. Knoxville has had 16 church plants in the last nine years. Last time I did my math, right? 95% of all Christians have never won anyone to Christ at all, says Michael Parrott. Only 41% of Southern evangelicals, only 41% believe that there is only one true interpretation in the Bible. 41. That means 59 don't. That's shocking to me. Only 36% of Southern evangelicals believe that their religion, their gospel, is the only one true gospel that leads to eternal life. Right? 36%. That means that 64% believe that there is another gospel to get to Jesus. That believes that there is another, another true way, another path. 64% of practicing evangelicals in the South. Our walls are down. The average giving for an evangelical family in the United States of America is $200 a year per family, right? Our walls are down. Our gates are burning. We are no better off than Jerusalem as a city, right? Now, Nehemiah saw the state of the Union as far as Jerusalem, and it cost him. It shocked him to his knees. Jesus saw the state of the Union for mankind, and he gave his life. We have a lot to learn from these two men because the goal for us is not to be just like Nehemiah. The goal is to be more like Christ. Nehemiah will be a guide for us. All right? That's important for us to say, I guess. So, I need the eyes of Nehemiah. I need the heart of Jesus in order to serve and love and be brokenhearted for my city. I have to have it. I have to have that. I mean, is your heart callous? These are questions for you. Is your heart callous? as you see need around you? I mean, do you weep for the church? Do you weep for the city? Does it break you? Are you aware of the broken walls around you? Listen, if you're not, asking God, asking God to give you a broken heart is one of the most beautiful prayers you can offer up. To ask God to plea, to beg hard. I mean, if, even if you're, you don't have a broken heart, you probably know that you don't have a broken heart. Just to ask Christ to replace my heart. Jesus, you took a heart of stone out and you put a heart of flesh in upon my salvation. Yet, yet I have calluses. I feel calloused. Help me with those. Are we taking responsibility for where we hurt the church? That's a tough question. I ask myself that too. Where am I guilty of hurting the church? I'm a pastor too, by the way. Where am I guilty of hurting the church? Which statistics do I see myself in most fluently? I'll tell you. Mine, for me, as I read Nehemiah, as I really think deep, it's got to be prayer. It's got to be prayer. I pray for all of you. I pray for our leaders. I pray for our families. I pray for our moms this morning, for a good chunk of the morning. I pray for this city. And yet, Yet, I know I don't pray enough. Yet, when I look at Nehemiah, I see a life, and when I look at Christ, I see a life bathed in prayer. Where they're crying out quickly, and they're crying out with long-suffering in other settings. But they're asking God for some very beautiful things. Putting Him first 
in all of things. Just enjoying His majesty, even in the prayer. Restating the things that He's already stated to us. And then pleading, pleading that we would have favor and grace follow us. I don't do that like I should. I don't do that like I want. Is that where I hurt the church? I would think so. I think I could improve on that. Yet, the grace, the grace to this is even when I fail in my intercession, one intercedes for me and leads me, right? And all of this is totally despite me, which is what grace is. So, my failure in prayer does not demote me any more than my perseverance and my acceleration in prayer promotes me. But I want to image Christ more. I want to image I want to see things occur around me in real time. And I want my heart to be broken. Listen, you can't mourn. You can't weep. You can't love. You can't fast. You can't be broken without God enabling you to do it. Because you weren't born with the right heart to do that. It's a gift from God. We should ask God for Ask God for a broken heart. That's my plea to you today. If you can hear one thing, that's it. Ask God for a broken heart. Because listen, it comes real fast. And then one morning you wake up and you're calloused. You're just calloused. Listen, I love people. I love people. I love the laundromat as an example. I love going and doing that. But I don't like doing that some mornings. Some mornings it's hard and my heart's callous and I just don't care about how people are. I just don't care how bad off they are. I don't care about whatever they're going through. I'm only caring about myself. And I have to ask God on those mornings, God, I can't even have compassion for this city unless you just give me that compassion. You grasp me and trade my heart out. I need these calluses ripped off. Now, as great as Nehemiah's prayer is, one better goes before or after him in like form. And he doesn't just pray for a city. He gives his life for a city. Okay? So Jesus, and this is how I'm going to finish with you guys. I want to say that the goal of this whole study on Nehemiah is not to look, because it would be very easy to do, because Nehemiah is a stud. So if you're a guy in here and you're reading the book of Nehemiah, it's easy for you to go, man, I want to be a stud like that guy. He doesn't even flinch. I like that, you know. He's a hard worker. He's a good leader. Let's build a curriculum on leadership and let's all try to be like Nehemiah. Listen, that is not the goal here. We're not here to be like Nehemiah. We want to be like Christ. Even as studly as Nehemiah is, we only look at Nehemiah through the lens of Jesus. Okay? Because Nehemiah is not just broken in emotion, but he's broken in body. Right? Nehemiah's heart was broken. Jesus' body was broken. You know, here in a minute, just a brief minute, the worship team's going to come back up. In fact, you guys can go ahead and come back up. Let's just do that. You guys can go ahead and just come back up. As they lead us, you will get an opportunity as families, as individuals, roommates, to go over and just take communion. And that resembles the better version of Nehemiah. I mean, we're, we're taking of a broken body and a spilt blood that was done as the heartbeat of the gospel for you and for me, totally despite you and me. Right? You know, Nehemiah wasn't responsible for all that sin, but he took responsibility in his prayer. But what I like about that, Christocentrically, as we anchor in Christ, Jesus too is not responsible for our sin. And he took responsibility, not just in prayer, but he took it on the cross. Do you see how that works out? 
Do you see how we are meant to look at this book? Do you see how we are meant to look at this story? That is the only way we can go into this. Jesus Christ absorbed into himself what was totally due for you and me. Totally. And I, I deserved it. Not just then. I do now. I de- we deserve it. Our sin is that reprehensible. But he took it. He didn't have to. It's not his responsibility. He's perfect. But he did it anyway. He did it anyway. He could have said, hey, 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 wait a minute. I'm not in line for this. I pulled off my stuff. I followed the law. And why, why do I have to take responsibility? But he did. That's a model for you and me. It's a model in how we love each other and love the city. All right? I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand up with me. I'm going to pray with you. You know, as a speaker, as a pastor, I, I make it, uh, and one thing I do do okay, I feel like, is I do make it a practice to really look squarely into what I'm about to preach to you guys and make it work on me all week long. That's why sometimes you're probably sitting there going, oh, too much information. You know, listen, it hurts to preach it as much as it might hurt to hear it. It's difficult for me. Yet, I'm convicted. i got to be honest with you. I'm convicted when I look at the life of Nehemiah who shadows the life of Christ and I see a broken man for a city taking responsibility beyond himself. We need to see that in our own lives. You need to let God do some work on you here in this moment that he would shift some things around and like, like me, ask God to break the callousness off of your hearts and to take responsibility for your family line, for yourself, for your immediate family, your greater family, for the church to be modeled after Nehemiah and therefore Christ. Amen?